This is Impulse Live Edition with your hosts, Sarah Medeiros and Julia Magana. Welcome back to Western Regional SAEM Day 2. And I have to say, Napa has been a beautiful place to be stuck inside a conference room. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's been a really full day. I hung out in the main conference room and I caught some of the plenary speakers like Dr. Harrison Alter talking about social emergency medicine and Dr. Mike Jasandi talking about the future of education and emergency medicine and just so much more. Sarah, while I was in all of these sessions, you were in the Western SAAM Challenge, right? Tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, this was actually awesome. So we had several stations. Several of them were ultrasound um, challenges. There was also a toxicology station. And then there was a big, intense sim station where um, they, you know, there was a, a case that was run and there were judges. And um, it, was, it was great. So we had teams. I think there were seven different teams. And I will forget where all of them are from, but definitely UC Davis, Stanford, Highland, um, UC Irvine as well, um, UCSC. Um, So it was a really great showing. And um, here's what some of the participants had to say about it. Um, I would say, like, the importance of collateral history and ingestions. Team communication, just making sure everybody gets on the same page after you splinter off different areas to manage different parts. Being adaptable and uh, learning to roll with the punches. How cucumbers look in jello. Talking about uh, propanolol toxicity causing, uh, well, not causing a bradycardia uh, and causing a widened QRS. That was kind of new. Yeah, what, what a strawberry looks like under ultrasound and how to differentiate that from a pea pod. It's going to come in handy. Um, that doing ultrasounds with your non-dominant hand makes it seem pretty easy if you're the other team members. So. What a seagull sign looks like. Sarah, that sounds like a lot of fun. One of my personal favorite moments from the day was actually the early hour of 8 a.m., which isn't usually my favorite hour of the day. (laughs) But um, we had a kind of a talk that was a spinoff of wellness. It was about time management. Yeah, I was actually really sorry to miss that one because, man, do I need time management in my life. (laughs) (laughs) You know, Sarah, I realized at this talk that email sucks up a lot of my life. So I caught up with Dr. Linda Herman. She's the Emergency Medicine Residency Program Director at Cahuilla Delta. And I spoke to her about finding your emails in. But first, I wanted to know, how did she come up with this talk to start with? Well, it came from the Wellness Committee of the Academy of Women for SAEM, and we have to consider what is true wellness. And so they feel that managing our time appropriately to in professional development and in our private lives is important, and so they put this talk together so that we could talk about the principles involved in it. Part of it is email zen. You know, most people use um, email about two hours a day, checking their email. Way too much time, really. So there are a few simple rules you can follow to, like, achieve this email zen. The first rule is to only check your email for 30 minutes or less twice a day. And what you do is you set a timer, you go through your email, and uh, when you're done with your email, you turn it off. And then you focus on other tasks and you have a time left in the afternoon or the evening where you check it again. And that's the first rule. 
The second rule is email is really only a tool. And it, you should use it as a tool, just as you would use an IND kit. And so what you should do is learn the tools in your email that will help you, such as archiving, recirculating, um, automatic replies, um, putting things in folders for saving for later kind of thing. And I, I do do that. The, um, a lot of it is organizing it appropriately and answering what you can right away using the automatic replies for like when we set up meetings now we choose a date and we send it to everybody we want involved to come and they can either accept or decline or tentative plus they can edit it and give us a reason why they can't make it and then that tells us whether or not we need to reschedule or we should go ahead with the meeting and so that helps us cut down on our time. There are some things that email are, is good for and some things that email is not good for. Emails are good for setting up time and dates to meet. It's good for sending short bursts of information, such as, I know you're giving this lecture. I just read this article. I thought that you might like to have it. It's good for um, short um, messages to somebody that you want a quick reply on. What isn't it good for? It's not good for negative feedback because no matter how nice you make it sound or how business-like you, you try, it always, they always read a tone into it. Just with apologies. It's not good for apologies. And, uh, <laughs> and so if you're doing an apology, it should be in person. The, it's not good for to-do lists. There are apps for to-do lists which, where you can put people that are working on the same project on the app with you. So it's really not good for to-do lists, and it's not good for long emails because people don't read the whole thing. If you need to have a long conversation and this needs to be a back-and-forth discussion, you should probably be doing it on the phone or in person. The, the last thing is to set up a system to process your emails. And I can't tell you how significant it is to delete, 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 all right? Get rid of those automatic replies, I'm out of the office. Get rid of all those things that they try to like sell you. You don't, and the truth is, is you don't have to answer every email. If somebody says, thank you for giving this presentation, let it go, okay? You don't have to answer everything. And try to empty your box every time the, um, for your 30 minutes. And when you're done, turn it off again and then do something that is more productive than checking email at times. Yeah, those are some great practical tips. After that, Sarah, I caught up with Dr. Kristen Nordenholt. She's an associate professor of emergency medicine at the University of Colorado School of Medicine. And she spoke today about the current concepts in anticoagulation and reversal. And as that is not my game in pediatric emergency <laughs> medicine, it was not my easiest interview, but she did have some important pearls to share. Here's what she had to say. Well, first of all, you have to decide if a patient actually needs to be reversed. So do they have a critical area of bleeding? By that, we generally mean something that we can't access, like inside the brain or the eye or the pericardium. And so do they need to be reversed? And then what is the agent that they're taking that we're going to be reversing? because obviously you want to target the correct drug. So my grandma's on dabigatran, and uh, she f was climbing up a ladder. She fell backwards. Um, she comes in. How do you know? She's got a big scalp hematoma. How do you know that she would need to be reversed? 
Well, you need to find out if she's got a head bleed, first of all, and so you'd want to do a CAT scan. Um, my next most important question would be, when was her last dose of Dibigatran? What time exactly was it, and how much of it did she take? Because the half-life of these new oral agents is very short, and if, for example, she forgot to take her meds for the last day or two, then she may not have any active drug on board, and she may not really be an anticoagulated patient. Okay. And um, what medications are available to reverse these new anticoagulants? Well, there are some specific agents. So dibigatran, for example, has a new antibody against dibigatran, which is specific for it, which is called, you ready? I dare you siximab. So I remember it as dibigatran, I dare you siximab because the Ds kind of go together. So I don't know if that helps or not. But that drug is available, although, of course, these newer agents are expensive and not easy to find everywhere. Um, that will reverse it. it specifically because it's an antibody against that very specific drug, and so it reverses it very quickly and 100% per the data. So if you have a patient with a head bleed who's recently taken dibigatran, for example, you need to try to get a reversal agent on as quickly as possible. Now, not everywhere has the reversal agents, so then you're stuck with plan B, which is you want to try to replace as much of the factor that is being blocked as possible. So in this case, you're probably stuck giving a PCC, which has some factor 2 in it to try to replace the 2. But obviously, that's not going to be as good as targeting specifically an antibody against the active drug. Any other key points you wanted us to get out of your talk today? These are complicated algorithms and complicated drugs, and it's very, very important to have some sort of strategy built in place before these patients roll through the door. Since our population is aging pretty rapidly, and there's more and more people being placed on these oral anticoagulants, and of course, there's still warfarin still out there, right, for patients with valves and patients with LVADs. It is important to have these protocols established and to have very tight discussions with pharmacy who is very, very involved and aware of the management of these patients. Yeah, so that's some great information. And next up was Dr. Nate Cooperman, who is chair of our department at UC Davis. He's also a well-known PCARN investigator, and we've had him on the podcast several times covering actually some of the topics that he spoke on. So what did you get out of it today, Julia? Well, like you said, Sarah, we have definitely covered the topics in, that he talked about today on EM Pulse, like hot off the press infant fever rule and DKA. It's not about the fluids. So I'll just kind of summarize them quickly. Number one, treat patients with DKA according to their hydration status. It doesn't appear that brain injury is from all of our fluids, which is good news. And Nate said that he gives most of his DKA patients, if not all of them, a solid 20 ml per kilo bolus. Number two, PCARN provides us with a new pediatric prediction rule yet again. And this study looked at infants less than 60 days of age and tells us who does not need a full workup. The low-risk infants are those with a normal UA, pro-cal less than 0.5, and an ANC less than 4,000. Now, Nate points out we are not ready to apply this yet to the infants less than 21 days, even though they're part of the study. And he certainly thinks long and hard before applying it in that 21 to 28-day group. So don't forget this rule does not pick up our little ones with HSV. It's only there to pick up SBI. So Nate still suggests tapping our youngest kiddos. Sarah, you caught up with Dr. Harrison Alter, who's an emergency medicine physician at Highland Hospital and the founding director of the Andrew Levitt Center for Social Emergency Medicine, right? 
Yeah, and I was really interested in what he had to say about social emergency medicine. So I first asked him to define that for us and tell us why it's important. My view of social emergency medicine is uh, the incorporation of social context into the structure and practice of emergency care. And what I mean by that is the 99.99% of a person's life that they are out there living their life and they're not a patient in the emergency department, how does that lived experience influence their care in the emergency department? So influence the likelihood that they're there in the emergency department, influence what I do about them when they're there in the emergency department, and influence what, how they go home or not. And so what we seek to do through the field of social emergency medicine is transform uh, both the structure and the practice of the emergency care system uh, to incorporate social context. If you wanted to kind of nail it down to one or two key concepts that you want people to walk away from your talk today, um, what would they be? Well, uh, I think, you know, the first point should be that the quality of the work in social EM is really astonishing, that people are taking this seriously, that the relationship between social drivers to care and the emergency care system is important and demands attention, and that people are endlessly creative about approaching it. We did papers today on the importance of criminal justice contact as a social determinant of health. This is a field that uh, is just so important and so uh, growing. It's really nascent, the research on the relationship between criminal justice contact and emergency care. But as Jahan made the point this morning, uh, you can show through the data we showed this morning, and then there was another abstract uh, also this morning uh, from UCSF on the subject, um, you can demonstrably prove that the majority of care for mental illness in this country is obtained in the criminal justice system and in the emergency department. And it just shouldn't be that way. You know, Sarah, I was got to break out after this and go and see some of the abstracts that our medical students were presenting. And I was really impressed with the quality of the research and how awesome this opportunity is for our young learners and for early faculty to be able to take what they're learning and present it and give each other feedback. It's a cool format for that. And while all of these abstracts are being presented, one of my favorite talks of the day came from Dr. Mike Gizondi. He's an associate professor and vice chair of education in the Department of Emergency Medicine at Stanford, and he presented on the future of medical education in emergency medicine. Yeah, you totally nerded out, Sarah. <laughs> Just a little. <laughs> so I uh, was future casting emergency medicine and its education for 2049. I was thinking about... Um, a, a resident born today on March 22nd, 2019 will be a 30 year old finishing her final year of residency in Stanford's 54th class. So that's what I wanted the audience to, to think about. And I wanted them to think about the learning objectives necessary to train this future residents and learning objectives in, in the simplest terms are, are skills and competencies, abilities of um, individuals after they've gone through a long program of study or, or an educational curriculum that takes many years. So if you think about an emergency medicine resident, their learning outcomes should be the ability to resuscitate a dying patient, to intubate, to deliver a baby on an airplane, right? So what will the learning outcomes of, of a resident be in 2049? I think those are um, 
in, instructed at best by thinking about how emergency medicine changes, how medical education changes, and then you can think about what do we need to do to prepare to teach that that woman 30 years from now. So in terms of how medicine or emergency medicine changes, I shared um, an article by Tom Naska from 2015 in the Journal of Graduate Medical Education where they paint a very bleak future. Um, but they do so in such an interesting methodologic way. I want all of your listeners to pull that article because it's so interesting to talk about alternative futures. And um, in it, they, they paint a number of, I would say, primarily market forces, but some regulatory changes that will change the profession of medicine. Um, just some, they have eight, but I'll give you just a couple of highlights. Obviously, medicine will become more complex. Our ability to access data um, will cause studies to be far more transparent, where you're going to know not only the analysis and the methodology, but the actual raw data points where you can reinterpret it. So, so those are important considerations, right? We're going to have to teach our student to be working in teams that address complex healthcare needs. We're going to teach our student how to analyze journals in ways we weren't taught how to analyze journals, right? And, and to be able to address um, the massive amount of information coming at her and saying, all right, well, I've got to curate the information that I need to know for my individual patient at this very moment. And so that skill of curation, I believe, is is its own um, new form of knowledge transition. It's its own new form of scholarship, honestly. Um, I think, you know, they, they talk about medicine becoming a commodity where we reduce all of the things that we do to care for a patient holistically to individual tasks. It will be reductionism of our profession. And those tasks can be performed by people who don't need to have a medical degree, right? So think about how we were the only ones putting in ultrasound-guided IVs for a while. Now the nurses do. Well, the tech can draw blood. Why can't the tech put in an IV? And why can't the tech use the ultimate? They're very intelligent people that work side-by-side side with us. They can certainly do this. So when we reduce our profession to tasks and we become commodities, it will be a race to the most easily accessible or the most inexpensive, not necessarily the most high-quality. And quality you know, could be provided by people who aren't doctors. So if you think about medicine, medicine is going to shift because of all of those um, market forces, but I think emergencies medicine responds to technology and will respond to big data and bioscience and precision health as dictated by um, recently the dean of the Stanford School of Medicine, Lloyd Miner, who, who really believes all three of those are, are part of the future. And I think that's very interesting. It means that patients are going to be using wearables and, and soon implantables as diagnostic tools 24-7. So does that change the very nature of emergency medicine and its profession, because no longer do we just respond to emergencies, we respond to unscheduled care needs. Because just because you went into AFib on your Apple Watch, um, you know you can go to the website med.stanford.edu backslash Apple Heart Study. It, you know if you have your iWatch and it and you go into AFib and it tells you you're in AFib, it doesn't mean you're in rapid AFib. It doesn't mean you're unstable, but it tells you to go see a physician. And that unscheduled care, that's really where our practice mandate is going to have to come. And that's, that's going to change what we think about ourselves, how we approach our job. We're not resuscitationists anymore. We're accessible physicians with a very broad skill set that perhaps many other professions don't have. Yeah, I totally agree with that, actually. I think that, I mean, we're already seeing some of that, right? I think. So, Mike, what does this this future look like right now for physician teachers, and how does this change how we teach right now? Yeah, that's that's um, an interesting question for the future because I think it can be answered in in a couple of ways, and perhaps 
um, each of the next three decades will, will be tiered out. I think in the next decade, we're going to get better at learning science. So teaching learners how to learn in ways that are evidence-based. So for instance, the use of space repetition and interleaving, um, elaboration, those, those sorts of techniques that, that really do have um, evidence, primarily from, interestingly, primary and secondary education literature now being applied in medical school, but, but still um, learning science. So we're going to see the application of that in the next 10 years, and I think that's going to become terminology that everyone who works in a medical school or in a residency or teaching hospital, they're going to be familiar with those terms in ways that they aren't right now. At that same time, I think technology is going to catch up so that we're able to get real-time learning analytics on our students. So what do I mean by that? So you know, the, the student who um, takes a test on an iPad and those scores get sent to a mainframe that dumps into uh, an easily digestible single-screen dashboard that turns red or green, depending upon whether the student is doing what they're supposed to or what they're not supposed to. And if they fail a couple of quizzes in anatomy... You as the instructional designer of their experience, as opposed to just their clerkship director, might might start to get data that you were never able to get before. And, and that might not be tomorrow, but that's going to be in the next five, 10 years easily. They're going to become um, easy to implement for large systems. They're going to be um, cost effective. And it requires us to just to grab data um, and have it pushed into a dashboard, um, and, and you're going to design that dashboard in a way that makes sense to you and to your learner. And from that, you're going to be able to say, well, this person needs an individualized learning plan. And, and that's going to become the learner-centeredness of our well-designed workplace environments where we're going to authentically instruct and assess our learners. That's how I, I think those 20 years move. The final 20 years, or the final 10 years in, in my in my 30-year kind of plan is you know, I, I think all of the tech that changes the way um, uh, the implantables and the wearables and the, you know, cha- change the way that uh, patients approach their healthcare provider will cause our students to have um, uh, needs for understanding um, how to address unscheduled care, how to um, respond to non-emergencies. Um, even if those non-emergencies occur in specialties that they weren't trained to do, the loss of the specialist, the the broadening of the generalist, or frankly, just everybody's a specialist, but they are able to pivot um, or able to work in teams. Those those learning outcomes are harder to teach um, until we have a reality of a patient population demanding those services of us. But once those wearables catch up and the implantables catch up and, and the patients access the healthcare system in different ways and for different reasons, then we have to teach to those patients. So I feel like that's kind of 20 years from now, um, you know, real-time chromosomal analysis in our emergency department, that could happen 30 years from now. Absolutely. So, so then we're going to teach students very differently when the science is different, but I don't, I don't think that's the next 10 years. I think the next 10 years is learning science. I don't think it's the next 20 years because that's the learning analytics time. I think it's it's probably closer to 30 years. But that's the time where medicine substantively changes. 
Sarah, next up on the agenda was Angela Jarman, who's a new faculty assistant professor of emergency medicine at UC Davis and a personal friend of ours, who was talking about a topic that is also near and dear to our hearts, and that is care of our LGBTQI patients in the emergency department. And this is particularly relevant for us here at EM Pulse because we've actually had three episodes on this topic, The Price of Beauty, talking about silicone injection, Don't Be a Jerk, which talks about care of our transgender patients in the emergency department, and then LGBTQIMD, talking about what it's like to be a provider. Yeah, absolutely. And and Angela's talk was great. And so I uh, caught up with her to ask her to give us a few highlights. I talked about caring for LGBTQI patients in the emergency department and essentially talked about best practices for um, providing competent and compassionate care to that patient population. Um, In general, we talked about some demographic information and how many patients this affects that we take care of. We also talked about a lot of health disparities in the sense that those are patients that tend to be underserved in our system. They're less insured and share a disproportionately high burden of disease. And then we covered some best practices for how to communicate effectively, including pronouns, discuss gender identity, privacy, and how to use a trauma-informed approach to speak to patients um, in a safe way and to explain the types of testing and exams that you need to do to answer their problem. And can you give us just a couple of sort of practical examples in terms of Um, things that somebody could do on their next shift if they have an LGBTQI patient. Yeah, I spent a fair amount of time talking about how to use the EMR. This um, population, one of the themes that we hear repeatedly in studies of things that are frustrating to them is having to repeat themselves over and over again and and explaining what their gender identity is and what their pronouns are. So we talked a lot about how to use the tracking board if you don't have Epic or if you do have Epic. And then if you do have Epic, you can do a build out where you put in pronouns and gender identity so that patients don't have to repeat themselves for every nurse, tech, resident, attending that comes into the room to speak with them. So the next talk is really actually applicable to all of us. <laughs> and then this was on exercise and medicine towards healthy providers. And it was by uh, Dr. Rachel Benson, who's a assistant professor, who's an assistant professor of emergency medicine and sports medicine at Oregon Health Sciences University. Yeah, this literally came at a very relevant time for me because my watch kept buzzing like, get up and move, you're not closing your rings. (laughs) But I ran into her afterwards and asked her to kind of summarize her practical tips for physicians to be healthier. Most importantly is that as physicians, we as a population are significantly missing moderate exercise goals to maintain our own health, to prevent chronic diseases, and to better weather any emergencies that we might experience if we ourselves become patients. Um, Particularly residents um, are at risk for not getting enough exercise. The most important things that I would want people to do is to realize you don't need to dedicate a specific hour every day to vigorous exercise. Small bits count. So whether it's showing up to work 15 minutes early and walking the halls or the stairs, picking up your pace so that you're still able to talk, but it would be uncomfortable to sing, that hits a bit of a sweet spot for getting those gains. And the recommendations for exercise are to achieve 30 minutes a day, most days of the week, um, for a total of about 150 minutes in a day. So if you do your 15 minutes, walk pre-shift, 15 minutes after that coupled with about the four to 6,000 steps you're getting within a shift, you'll be helping prevent a myriad of chronic diseases and helping your own um, long-term health and quality of life. 
that sounds super practical. Do you have a favorite app or wearable or some form of tech that you like to help facilitate that? Yes. So there are so many free resources. Um, I think data is particularly useful. Almost all of us have a smartphone in our pockets already that you can look in the pedometer section where it's already achieving your steps. Um, And then if you have the means to get a watch um, that can help keep track of other fitness goals, it can be incredibly motivating. And give true insight into where we are, we aren't aren't matching our expectations with what our reality in terms of our fitness are. So the next talk was on social media, which, as you know, is a big interest of mine. And the talk was by Dr. Nikita Joshi, who is emergency medicine faculty at Alameda Health System. She spoke on social media in medicine, building your brand. And regardless of how you feel about social media, this topic is really relevant to all of us. So my talk was titled Social Media Branding, and the purpose of the talk is to realize that we are all on social media, whether or not we want to be, and that I wanted to convince the audience that it is to their advantage to take control of their social media presence and the content that's out there. Even if you don't want to be the most engaged person creating blog posts and tweets every day, you should still be online and aware of the stuff that's out there. So start by Googling yourself. See what's out there. If you're happy with it, great, you're done for a few years. If you're not happy with it, do something about it. And what that means is your universities and medical schools that you're associated with, hospitals, probably already have your name and profile up there. If you are affiliated and interested in social media, that content that you're putting out there, tweets, blog posts, photos, are out there. But at the end of the day, make sure you're happy with the message that is there. Ignoring social media will not make it go away, but managing your content is one of the most powerful tools we have in our arsenal. Social media is a powerful tool, and it can also be a minefield as well. Fortunately, we are going to be addressing this topic in future Impulse podcasts, so stay tuned. At the end of the day, Jim Holmes also gave some special awards to the best abstracts, and we want to send a shout out for the Med Student Award, Scott Casey from Albert Einstein, who, by the way, is also a future UC Davis emergency medicine resident, won the Med Student Abstract Award. For residents, Christopher Winstead Derlega from Stanford won for his abstract, and the Young Investigator Award went to Tiffany Abramson, who's from the Keck School of Medicine at the University of Southern California. After Jim awarded the abstracts, I caught up with him, and I wanted to know from him what really stayed with him from the day, and this is what he had to say. There are a couple things today, actually. I, I can't just settle on one, but um, first, there was Mike Jasandi's talk on uh, the future of education and really education and emergency medicine and where we're going, and it was the the thoughts that he uh, suggested and where we're going. Um, it's really thought-provoking and amazing that we could be in 10, 20, 30 years, how we change what we do in the way we um, train and educate learners. And it was really a interesting and, and thought-provoking talk. And then the other one, maybe a little bit personal, is is uh, Rachel Vincent, who's from OHSU, talked about exercise in medicine and how to keep yourself um, healthy. And, and for someone who has done a little bit of exercising over his life um, it's, and has had, suffered a, a couple injuries recently, um, it's uh, something that inspired me that, you know, I do need to take care of myself. And it kind of fits into the wellness that we talked about a lot uh, the last two days of uh, just really making sure you have time set aside for that exercise um, to maintain health. And uh, so those are the two things that probably stuck out to me the most. 
And I have to say another big thank you to Jim Holmes. He worked so hard to put on this conference, and I thought it was really excellent. So great work, Jim. Now, Julia, let's talk about what stuck with us today. What were some of the highlights for you? Yeah, I mean, I agree with Jim that both of those really stuck out for me as well. Um, If I'm going to be totally selfish, my medical student presented an abstract that we worked on, and I was so proud of Alex Gemelli and his hard work on marijuana ingestion in the pediatric emergency department. I really appreciated what he did. But from the main committee, um, I really resonated with what Linda Herman said. She was part of the Wellness Committee of the Academy of Women for in SAEM. And as a mom, I appreciate that they are investing in my own time management. Linda Herman pointed out that we are better to do focused email times and turn off email at other times, do one half hour here. And that makes a lot of sense to me that maybe I can focus on answering emails appropriately and not letting Siri answer all of my emails (laughs) (laughs) while I'm trying to pick up my son at school and focus on my son and then go home and focus on my email and have these like more discrete time periods. I thought that was something for me to think about. Yeah. And there really were so many outstanding talks today. You guys have already mentioned some of my favorites, Um, but I have to say, I also had so much fun at the Western EM challenge today. So the resident teams that came through were so knowledgeable and so skilled. It was so fun to see. And after an exciting morning, the two finalists were the teams from Stanford and UC Davis. (laughs) So ultimately, the Stanford team was victorious. So huge congrats to them. Yes, sir. It's been a really fun conference. I know that I've learned a lot and I've enjoyed connecting with um, friends and colleagues from different stages of my career. And I've also really enjoyed podcasting with you at a live conference. This was our first time doing it, and it was a lot of fun. Yeah, this was really a new experience for us. So for all of you listening, we would love to hear your feedback. Did you like the format? Are there things we could have done better? We would really appreciate hearing from you. So shout us out. We're on social media at Impulse Podcast. And if you want to see more of what's been going on at the conference, you can follow hashtag WRSAEM19 or follow at WRSAEM19 on social media as well. Um, you can also find us at ucdavisem.com slash Impulse. Yeah, thank you to Nate Cooperman and to our department for supporting us in our endeavors and uh, being part of a successful conference. And thank you to OM Audio Productions. It has been a long 48 hours. (laughs) Let's go home. (laughs) 